Reagan was very specific. His his goals and, and everyone who worked for him knew, you know, end the Cold War, reduce the deficit, deregulation. And those those were pounded into our heads, job one, two, and three. And, and we so distinctly remember when he was uh, speaking at the podium during the State of the Union and he starts piling up all of the regulatory uh, paperwork as a demonstration as to what it was our job to do, which is, is decrease regulation so that business could thrive. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. What Ronald Reagan can teach us and leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that excerpt, my friends, was from former ambassador and now current CEO of FAIR, Lisa Gable. She shares on this episode the focus from President Ronald Reagan, objective decision-making, and how to thrive in a complex environment. So let's jump to your uninterrupted episode of The Real Years Podcast with Miss Lisa Gable. Enjoy. I think I'm all set. All right. As ready as we'll ever be, right? All right, here we go. Let's bring it today in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is former ambassador and current CEO of FAIR, uh, the Food Allergy Research and Education, Mrs. Lisa Gable. Lisa, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me today. Well, of course. Uh, so for our audience, let's, let's just go... Let's go back, uh, you know, a couple of years, uh, Mrs. Gable. What you grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia? We just talked about this. Now, what are some of the expectations uh, of a female at that time for someone coming out of Lynchburg, Virginia? Well, you know, I was very fortunate in that I had a father who really supported all of my unusual interests. And my unusual interests were that I was fascinated by military technology, and uh, he would uh, take me to. Uh, battlefields all over Virginia, of which we know there are many of them, and uh, really encouraged me in my study of history, took me to Europe so I could see battlefields and things. And I ultimately ended up getting my master's degree in military weapons systems. So for for a girl who was uh, pretty scrawny and had her white go-go boots, there was a bit of a disconnect for most people that my fascination was with military history, but uh, had a great dad who really supported me throughout all of my career. Oh, interesting. What was your, I guess, your favorite part about uh, American history then? Civil War, Revolutionary War? You know, more the Revolutionary War, although I really got into, you know, World War II, as all kids do once you have the opportunity to, to go overseas, and, um, and also uh, into Roman history. Interesting. You know, it's tough because you know I grew up on the West Coast, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. You know, we, we don't really see the artifacts like that every day. Uh, what does something like that do to you uh, in terms of understanding uh, maybe our country's history and our rights? Yeah, it's you. You grow up in it. I mean, you grow up in Virginia. You're in the middle of it. Appomattox was only 30 minutes away from where we lived, more or less. Uh, you know, you go to Manassas, and and so you're you're in the middle of it all, and you have an appreciation, especially as a Virginian. Remember, we had seven presidents, and we had Thomas Jefferson. I ended up going to University of Virginia, you know, with George Washington, and uh, and you had Patrick Henry, and so you grew up with an understanding as to uh, why our founding fathers fought for their freedom, how they lived their lives, what was important to them, and, uh, and, and really the essence of who we are as a nation and what's unique about us as a nation. Do you remember a time when you said, I want to go into politics, I want to go into, I want to go to Capitol Hill, and I want to be a part of uh, this U.S. history? What was that moment like, or is there something that sticks out to you? 
Well, I grew up um, meeting many different uh, elected officials and politicians. Lynchburg has a, a number of people who cycle through it. Uh, and so I was always interested in it. Uh, at that point, when I turned 18, I, my dad said, look, I'll help you get your first internship. And then after that, you have to get your own internships. And so when I came to Washington, Ronald Reagan had just won elected office and uh, they were doing a feature on the front page of the Washington Post featuring three interns who came to Washington because of Ronald Reagan. And I was one of those people. And so, you know, when you when you hit Washington and your, your picture at age 18 is on the front of the Washington Post and they're interviewing you as to why you were attracted to D.C., it's 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 an interesting moment because I ended up meeting so many more people than the average 18 year old would have met due to that article. Mm, OK, so what was your role then as an intern starting out under Reagan? And are there a couple of things that stuck out to you in terms of his leadership style? Well, Reagan was extremely focused. Uh, you know, I interned on Capitol Hill. And then when I was 19 years old, I had the opportunity to join the administration. There was one political appointment for a college student. And so I actually joined the Department of Education and I was the spokesperson uh, for the administration on the privatization of student loans. And so, you know, at age 19, I put myself through school. I put myself through graduate school. And so I, I was a, a realistic speaker about what it took. And I, and I understood what it took. And I was working phone banks at nighttime to make money so I could work for free during the daytime for different people. Uh, but Reagan was very specific. His his goals and, and everyone who worked for him knew, you know, end the Cold War, reduce the deficit, deregulation. And those those were pounded into our heads, job one, two, and three. And, and we so distinctly remember when he was uh, speaking at the podium during the State of the Union and he starts piling up all of the regulatory uh, paperwork as a demonstration as to what it was our job to do, which is, is decrease regulation so that business could thrive. Interesting. You know, a lot of turmoil going on during that time. Obviously, the Cold War, um, the Iran uh, crisis, and then you also dealt with a, a few things. I don't know if it was during that administration. I'm, I'm referring to referencing Tailhook right now. Right. Uh, maybe explain to our audience uh, how you were able to deal with such situations that are so controversial and so uh, and of such high importance. Well, obviously, I was very young when I worked at the White House in the Defense Department. Uh, I was at the White House when Gorbachev came to visit Reagan, and so that was really signaling the end of the Cold War. And um, and to be as young as I was, you know, you're the person on the outside of the room taking the notes and keeping track of the schedules and making sure that the person at the table has their water, whatever it is that they need. But you're absorbing so much, right? You're listening to these, these powerful leaders from around the world uh, talk about you know, very complex issues, but also something that was so, in this particular case, so so magnificent, which was uh, really the fall of the Soviet Union. And um, later, I did have the opportunity, as you mentioned, to be a Bush holdover. What that means is at midnight, I was appointed by George uh, George. Herbert Walker Bush uh, to a board called the Defense Advisory uh, Committee on Women in the Services. And I was actually sworn in under Bill Clinton's administration. And so I served in the Clinton administration for three years and I was I was made vice chairman of, of that board. And we uh, it was truly right at the point where tailhook uh, had just happened. And so our first two years were grappling with these issues around uh, sexual harassment in the military, uh, concerns that military women had 
had, uh, particularly enlisted, senior level enlisted women, that they'd worked so hard to get to this point, uh, and they didn't want that conversation to basically uh, take away or distract from the relationships that they had with their male colleagues, that they fought so hard to be equals, and they and they felt they were equals. But at the same time, you did have this crisis, and so managing through that crisis was was a fascinating learning experience for me that I've brought forward throughout the rest of my career. Interesting. Now, Mrs. Gable, uh, you know, I, I think it's very unique, at least looking back, you know, that. Uh, People nowadays will make the argument. It's like, yo, you know, she was a female at the time. Like that's such a, such high importance. Did it ever strike you during that time that it was odd that you might have been, you know, a small minority on Capitol Hill? Well, where I was a small minority was in the national security arena. I was I was not only the youngest political appointee at the Defense Department, but you know I was a I was a 21 year old woman, and my graduate program that I did at nighttime was at Georgetown, and it was 85 percent men, and and the 85 percent men were mid career men. They were military men, uh, individuals from Capitol Hill, uh, guys from the intelligence agencies, and it was uh, another woman and I. She was 22 and I was 21, and uh, we're sitting there. Uh, you know, and these guys are using acronyms. And once we figured out the acronyms, then we could participate in the conversation. Uh, but it's it's a very different world today than it was back then. And, and that is obviously the thing I noticed. And, uh, and at the same time, I was always supported. I, I had a number of male mentors and I had a lot of people encouraging me throughout my career. When we think of uh, decision making, obviously you want the, ba- the best outcome. That's what you're looking for. How important, or I guess, what's a protocol that you go through to make sure that the decision that you're making today is going to be the best decision for tomorrow? Well, that goes back to the whole tail hook situation. So uh, because there were such diverse opinions, because it was so highly politicized, I was working at Intel Corporation at the time. Intel was a $1.2 billion company. Now it's a multi-billion dollar company. And uh, my boss, Craig Barrett, who ultimately became the CEO and chairman of the board of Intel, taught me about statistical process control and process management. Andy Grove was known for process management and using process to drive decisions. And so what I did in that committee is I brought in the Baldrige Award people and I said, look, this is this has gotten too emotional for everybody involved. Give us a process that we can follow so that we can make recommendations to the Secretary of Defense that reflect what it is we're hearing from the military. And so the Baldrige people actually helped establish the process we used. We went to 52 military bases around the world. We all had the same questionnaire. Everybody adhered to the rules that you had to write down the answers that you heard. And then we went in a big room with a bunch of generals and admirals and everybody got those little round stickies. We had big charts up on the wall that was basically you know, a culmination of all that we had heard at these military bases. And uh, people were asked to rank and rate the top three recommendations to the Secretary of Defense. And and it was ironic because this has become the norm in Silicon Valley, but in, in military, that wasn't really what people were doing at that time. So watching a bunch of admirals you know, go around making a decision if they were going to use their five stickies to do one vote or if they're going to spread them out, how they were going to do it. Uh, but, but that was the first time I brought process to solve a controversial political issue. And that is ha- what I have done in every case that I've been involved in. And we're just going to pause here really quick, folks, because do I have a story for you? It involves eating cookies and giving back. And if you like the sound of that, 
you, my friends, have to learn about my new sponsor, Nunbelievable. They're a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to the food insecure by 2022. Here's how it works. When you or your corporation or a friend orders a box, it's going to show up at your house, at your door, nicely packed, and then they are going to donate two meals to soup kitchens across America. Okay, folks, another thing you need to know is that you, lucky listener, today are receiving 25% off. You gotta try these cookies, they're amazing. This one right here is the the double chocolate chip. I've already gone through the peanut butter today. Delicious. Again, folks, real-leaders.com slash podcast. Enter in code REALLEADERS, that's all caps and one word, REALLEADERS, And you, my friends, are going to have a box like this. Show up at your door. It's going to be 25% off. And you're also going to be donating two meals to someone in need. So be a smart cookie and build sweet relationships with the unbelievable cookie. Enjoy. And now, like, one would think that would be the norm nowadays, right? Using data. It's it's almost the only way to make an objective decision nowadays. Do you believe that going with your gut uh, hinders a lot of leaders? Um, or do you think there should be a nice balance between going with your gut or making a, a decision based off of uh, data? I think that there is a misunderstanding about what means to go with your gut. If mm. If someone has had a lifetime of experience and they've gotten to a certain leadership position, in most cases, they're sitting there in the back of their head processing all the data. And so their ability to process that data much more quickly than other people based on their life experience, based on the various situations in which they've been in, may make it look as if they're not listening to the inputs. But the reality is they're actually sitting there. It's like a Rubik's cube, right? They're sitting there twisting through all the different dynamics that they've already experienced, that they know what works. And so I would actually say, you know, at at a certain position that going with your gut is based on experience, that experience is based on, you know, your, your body's retention, your brain's retention of the data that's been served up to you. So Mrs. Gable, maybe tell our audience about that transition from outside of uh, Capitol Hill now, outside the Defense Department. Um, why make the decision to change and where did you go to next? So I was very uh, fortunate. I've, I've had a number of, of uh experiences that were unexpected, but led to big changes in my life. Um, I I was in presidential personnel at the White House. Basically, that's the recruiting arm for the White House for big presidential appointments. And I had brought in a woman by the name of Barbara Barrett. Now, Barbara Barrett today is Secretary of the Air Force. Uh, But I had brought her back in 35 years ago to interview to be the deputy at the um, FAA. And so Barbara comes in and my boss is two hours late for the meeting. And so Barbara and I sit in the basement of the White House. I'm 24 years old, talking away for two hours to this very nice woman. And, you know, at this point, I'm in graduate school at nice time. So we're, we're running out of things to talk about. She goes, oh, tell me what you're doing your master's thesis on. And I was doing it on uh, Julia's products, one of which was semiconductors and supercomputers. And she goes, oh, you really need to meet my husband sometime. His name is Craig Barrett. He's with this company called Intel Corporation in Arizona. And so when I was leaving the White House, there was this article, front page article in Newsweek that said, who's going to be the next CEO of Intel? And there were four guys' pictures on there. Well, 
One of, one of them was Barbara's husband. So I called her up and I said, Barbara, can I meet your husband now? And uh, Craig and I met and he asked me if I wanted to move out to the manufacturing plant in Arizona at the end of the administration and work for him. And you did. And so what did Intel teach you about business now? I mean, this is a, a corporation, I think it's actually headquartered now in, in Hillsborough, Oregon. Uh, and, and it's just massive, uh, big company. Um, you're in data and tech. You're immersed by this probably at a, a time when it wasn't that well known. What did this teach you about business in this ever changing landscape? Sure. Well, you know, Andy Grove was an amazing leader and uh, wrote a book called High Output Management, which basically indicated that you had to set objectives and key results and they had to be measurable. It wasn't that you just said, this is my objective and this is what my key result is. It actually had to have a measurement component. So as measured by, and you had to walk into meetings with your boss, with your objectives and key results and your agenda for your meeting had to tie to that. And so every quarter, all of us learned that the action we took and I was young. I was at the bottom of the totem pole, but I knew that these activities that I took that drove certain quantitative measurements rolled up into that information that Andy would show in the business update meetings. And uh, and at that time, Intel had, uh, well, the semiconductor industry had lost a lot of market share to the Japanese. And so I would never forget, and Andy would, would put up the slide and it was the barbarians at the gate. It was, it was basically this castle and the barbarians are there. And at that point, Intel said, we have one job. One job is we're taking back the semiconductor market. And during that time period, we achieved 85% penetration worldwide at the semiconductor market and, and really set, you know, Intel chips were the core for a long period of time. Um, so that ability to focus on job one, and I still use all of this mechanisms. I mean, everybody read Andy's books. They're now out printed. You have to buy used copies on Amazon. But anyone who works for me, I actually make them read the book. We follow the process and we make a decision. If, if we, we had a do or die, one thing that we could only do, what is the most important thing that we as an organization need to do this year? And, and they taught me that level of focus, which I think was, was unique and, uh, and that level of measurement that would allow me to achieve that focus area. Right. Yeah. And, and articulating a vision is a great trait of leadership. Uh, you, you, I'm just going to draw a parallel from uh, Ronald Reagan's three points, you know, defeat the Cold War, increase bureaucracy, lower taxes. Those three things are easy to grasp. This barbaric concept, easy to grasp. Now, moving on to uh, PepsiCo uh, as a senior vice president, did you incorporate any of these, these principles of focus uh, into PepsiCo? And what were some of the key initiatives that you were working on? Well, what's interesting is before I joined Pepsi, I actually ran a foundation that uh, Ingenuity helped found uh, that was the largest self-regulatory effort for 16 food and beverage companies. And Inter was chairman of that board. And again, the companies wanted to do something. They wanted to uh, make a change in their products that would have a positive impact on obesity. And, and typical, they're like nine, 10 things. We're going through all these meetings. I was having migraines. And you know, again, what's job one? What's the one thing that's made the biggest difference? And I'll never forget that one of the uh, chief scientists from Campbell Soup pops up and she goes, you know what? Job one, reduce calories. If you reduce calories, you reduce sugars and fats. And Indra really led that charge 
um, that ultimately ended up with the reduction of 6.4 trillion calories. Uh, later, when I left Healthy Weight, she asked me to come to PepsiCo and set up some systems that would allow uh, PepsiCo to look at long-term and near-term threats so that they could also use that knowledge base to know where they needed to line up public policy assets and where the potential threats to their product lines or markets might be, usually in the regulatory and tax arena. So that's how all of that translated to, once again, what's the number one thing we need to focus on? Uh, I find great interest in interviewing uh, social entrepreneurs, sustainable enterprises, uh, corporations that are making positive behavior changes uh, for their consumers, as well as incorporating healthy ingredients into their products or packaging or you know environmentally friendly packaging, things like that. You obviously with Pepsi, there's a correlation with sugar and you know diabetes and fat and you know all that stuff. But what you're saying is by reducing these calories, was there like a trade-off in terms of uh, the, the revenue that you were bringing in, or did you find that consumers were purchasing products that had less calories in them? Uh, we saw during the five years of the 16 companies making this commitment and measuring it, it was the companies made the commitment for a longer period of time, but we measured five years, 99% of sales were driven by lower calorie products. And when I entered Pepsi, Pepsi was actually in a massive sugar reduction phase, uh, lowering calories with the goal that the portfolio mix would be predominantly products that were under 75 to 50 calories. And so it wasn't something that just Indra was leading from a national standpoint, we lived and breathed it every day within the company. And that was her goal as the leader of the largest, you know, snack foods company. Cause also remember Pepsi isn't just beverages, it's free to lay. And, uh, and so Indra was uh, looking at manufacturing processes. She was looking at just fascinating things like the way that sugar was, or not sugar, salt was cut, that you could uh, get that taste bust that you like on your tongue, but actually consume less salt because they were able to so finely hone the manufacturing process that they also reduce sodium. I think it's great we have Jan, someone who's been in that position at a you know very large corporation. I think your audience is really going to appreciate this. Uh, we were just talking about objective decision-making. Um, sometimes uh, objective decision-making only takes into account what has happened in the past. And sometimes it's short term. Uh, a lot of the folks we've had on have said, you know, we need to make these responsible, these socially responsible, these environmentally responsible changes for our companies to think about the long-term impact, i.e. packaging, transportation costs, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, things that consumers want to see that might translate to the bottom line. But how, as an executive in uh, PepsiCo, do you look at those? And when someone comes to you with something like that at that time, if they did, what were some of your reactions that went through your head? Well, you know, it's interesting because I just had this conversation with uh, Josh Bolton, who's the head of the Business Roundtable, and you may know that they made a statement about that as all the Business Roundtable leaders. Fundamentally, I, I actually was very involved in the first rounds of companies being engaged in K-12 education when I was at Intel. And so I still have programs that I set up there that still exist today. I actually go back and check their stats on an annual basis, um, as well as working with the auto industry uh, when hybrid cars took over the uh, marketplace. Same thing with food and beverage. 
to, to measure, you have to have measurement. It, it has to be real measurement. You, you can't require companies to measure something that is, you know, that's squishy. Um, and in fact, what the other key element is, is to understand that the measurement can't be the same for all types of companies. So even when I was working for, with 16 food and beverage companies, somebody made ice cream, somebody else made bread, somebody else made peanut butter. It, you can't, there's, there's no way government or a measurement system can ask for reformulation or redesign of a product that's going to consistently work across all product lines. So I do believe it has to be a self-regulatory process. It's a commitment of the companies. They can measure that. PepsiCo had a very uh, complex and uh, uh, measurement system, as does Nestle, and they actually produce reports on an annual basis as to what changes they made. But it's using the power of the market. It's still capitalism. It's using the power of the market and cost and expenses that the company was already going to spend in a manner that has multiple objectives. One or two of those objectives might have a social component to it, but still another objective has to be about making money for the company. If you don't make money for the company, you can't produce the products and you can't employ the people who drive the trucks. And so it's a it's a dynamic that sometimes I think we lose when we talk about these issues because it still has to be measured. And what I've learned in K through 12, hybrid cars, the environmental movement and food and beverage is when I've used the, the existing infrastructure to drive change, that change is sustainable because it's baked into the company's day-to-day operations. Right. And that's the misconception, right? Just like adding a sustainable component as an arm or because we're making a lot of money, we're going to do some charitable event. What you're saying is by integrating something operationally into your organization, that's when change can really happen. And and you can't manage something that you can't measure. So I think that's a really good point that I think our audience will be able to take away. Now, for to make this transition to um, the food allergy research and education fair that you're running right now, what are some of the things that are surprising you right now uh, uh, in terms of food allergies across our country and our kids and, and their eating habits? Well, I, I have to say I don't have a child with food allergies. I'm brought in to take organizations to the next level and, and raise a lot of money and change the infrastructure towards a particular purpose. So when I walked in myself, I actually didn't understand the, the degree to which food allergies has risen since 1998. Uh, they have, uh, since 98, you've seen an exponential rise, 32 million Americans who have life-threatening food allergies. That means they carry an epinephrine auto injector with them. And, um, and that in the largest rise in children, happened around 98. And so one of the things that we look at is what happened in 1998? What was unique about 98? Uh, some of There were unintended consequences on a few points. One is what we call the hygiene theory. All of a sudden, we were very clean. You're introducing Purell in. Everybody's doing their hands. You're wiping down every countertop. You're not letting your kid go outside. People are moving oh. into the cities. You have a rise in asthma, allergies, eczema. You, 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 your body is not learning at a young age you know, to how to, how to assimilate. Um, secondarily is we were telling parents not to feed the allergen to their children until they were of a certain age. And so what happened also, we were told pregnant women don't eat the allergens. That was the wrong information to give those women. And so you have a really heavy 
burst in 98, those children are, my daughter was born in 98, so they're 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, whose parents followed that rule and you saw the rise of food allergies. Now what we're doing is what we call early introduction. We're actually encouraging families to do exactly the opposite, which is introduce the allergens into your diet into the child's diet at a young age. We can't guarantee it will prevent allergies, but what we do know is it'll mitigate the risk. And um, and we also know that it may not mitigate the risk of all allergens, but it puts the child in a much better position where their body has certain uh, characteristics where their biology is now able to fight the disease a little bit more. So that those are two big items that we've, we've really seen that cause the rise of food allergies and what's most fascinating to me. Interesting. So what's the vision going forward now? Like you talk about measurements. What are you measuring in specific so that you know you're on progress? So our team has established measurements where we are focusing. We we announced in uh, December of 2018 that we would raise $200 million. We've gotten $75 million in commitments so far. Uh, Our goal is to use 75% of the money that we raise for research. The research is for basic research. We need to understand the mechanisms of the disease, what's causing the disease, Uh, transformational research, any research that can actually transform the environment and serve as a platform for innovation throughout multiple different sectors. And third is we really want to move therapies and diagnostics to market. And so we focus on regulatory barriers. Uh, you know, one of our goals is to reduce regulatory barriers so that if we're able to identify a therapy that would actually be a multi-allergen therapy that could potentially impact a number of people. Right now, there's a peanut therapy that was approved by the FDA recently, but there are eight other allergens. Um, so we want to we want to fight for a multi-allergen therapy. And so we set metrics related to uh, when we have to have things in market set up for clinical trials. Uh, what our data platforms have to be, what numbers we need to achieve in order to provide what's called the voice of the patient so that the people doing the research, the pharmaceutical companies, the biotech companies have access to the data. So we have a very structured process for elevating uh, and making people aware that food allergies is, in our minds, an epidemic. Uh, and we, we need that because we need the government to come in and also help support us with industry. Uh, and then also really driving at the research infrastructure that can ultimately be self-sustaining through revenue generation, which is very important uh, for a philanthropy that has a, a fairly thin donor base. You look at my kids and there's one behind me uh, and he doesn't look sick. Right. So it's, it's not a disease where the, the disease is apparent. There's no physical manifestation unless you're there when a child goes into anaphylaxis. So we don't have that normal philanthropic base. We have to be able to create revenue to support the research that we're doing. Yeah. And it's a problem that's kind of just overlooked, too. I mean, the other day, I think it was two weeks ago, my roommates like one of their friends from college uh, went to an anaphylactic arrest because of a nut allergy that he didn't know about. And he's our age, so it was really scary. He died, passed away from it. Um, when, okay, so what year did you step into your role as CEO of FAIR? So I was brought in in June of 2018. June 2018, okay. So when you step into this role, what's the first thing you make sure to do? I was asked to completely restructure the organization. Uh, The organization had an endowment. Uh, It had a clinical network that was at some of the top universities in the the world, Stanford, Harvard, Emory, Vanderbilt, et cetera. Um, But there was a focus that was more on um, 
sort of things like walks and, and basic advocacy, less of a focus on research development. Uh, in the day-to-day operations, we're operating in the red. So I walk in the door. Uh, we did a 49% restructure in the first 80 days, and we actually restructured the entire board, all of the governance, uh, constitution of the board. Uh, we set up non-voting boards that have fiduciary responsibilities. So everyone who's been involved in FAIR in a leadership standpoint still serves on a board of ambassadors, the board of directors, which has fiduciary and governance responsibility, and board of governors, which has a fundraising and research support responsibility. So we did a massive restructuring since then, we've done a complete restructuring of 83%. So it's a new organization. Uh, we hired in t- wonderful uh, PhDs who are MBAs, uh, people from Japanese pharmaceutical companies. We have someone from Dubai who worked for the Dubai Health System uh, that has a very large, complex uh, infrastructure for data collection and, and infrastructure to support research, uh, chief medical advisors. And so it's a complete reconstitution of the organization around, around investing in therapy. On a personal level, Lisa, why female empowerment? Girl Scouts of America, Boys and Girls Club, uh, FAIR now. Why health for for young adults? Because, you know, women women need that level of empowerment. I, I All of my philanthropies, in some way, shape, or form, I, I always end up working to help empower women. And, you know, men need empowerment, too. I, I'm actually a big supporter of Boy Scouts, but I served on the board of Girl Scouts, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. I got to work with boys and girls. Uh, but not all children have the same opportunities. Girl Scouts uh, tend to bring children in from the suburbs. It is more of a suburban environment. So you, you're taking a child who, who actually has a family structure and an environment that's very positive and can help launch them if they, if they get that uh, training that they need to become leaders. And and, uh, and it's exciting. I mean, when you look through all the various people who have been Girl Scouts, it's an amazing number of female leaders that they learned from cookie sales. Cookie sales are an amazing way to teach kids about capitalism. Uh, with Boys and Girls Clubs of America, those kids, they don't come from, from backgrounds that have uh, the support system. So the club is their home. And so how do we take them into the club? How do we not only give them the love and support that they need, help them do their homework, but how do we get them focused on graduation? And so with Boys and Girls Clubs, our number one issue was that they, that they graduate, they graduate from high school. They may go to a two-year college, they may go right into work, they may go to a four-year college, but the number one thing is get that high school degree, but do it with an environment that's loving and supportive and gives them an opportunity to explore the other things that make them into the people that they are. Uh, a lot of uh, my girlfriends that I have and grew up with, you know, they grew up in a very nice place and sometimes they don't experience the struggle and that sets them back when they face a hard time or go to college or something like that. Is there an advantage that some of these these uh, you know, young females have with growing up in a difficult setting with, uh, you know, not a great support system that can come out? Like what type of things are you teaching them and do they have an advantage when they step out? Um, I don't know if they have an advantage, but I do think it's important for people to struggle a little bit. I I took my own daughter at the age of 16 to Haiti to volunteer for a week. I just wanted her to see what it was like if you were in a place that had nothing. Um, And I do think it's important for kids uh, from um, upper middle class, middle class backgrounds to spend that time with that volunteer. Do other kids have an advantage? I mean, it's interesting. Boys and Girls Clubs of America has a program uh, for Youth of the Year. And the Youth of the Year is this highly competitive program from across the nation. Uh, And then one child is selected as the spokesperson for Boys and Girls Clubs. And you listen to these stories. They are heart-wrenching. And yet at the same time, 
you, 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 you realize how amazing this child is. And so you listen to kids talk about, uh, uh, divorce, fathers in jail, physical abuse, domestic violence, and, and they talk about how that did give them, uh, the power, but boys and girls club taught them how to use that power and brought them into an environment where every kid needs support. And some children will talk about how uh, they had all these awful, awful things happen. Children who'd watched, you know, a brother or sister shot when they were seven years old or another child be abused. And the children make their own choices. The child who went into the club had that extra bounce of support system and is now youth of the year. The child that didn't go into the club ended up suffering. So it's, it's, I don't know if it makes them stronger, but I do know that if you, if you, go in there with the goal of empowering them, helping them and start removing hurdles and giving that encouragement to use the brain that they have and the support system to do their homework and make sure they get it in on time. That's a magnificent gift. I think you just touched on something is that, you know, making a choice. Uh, you made a choice to come out of Lynchburg, Virginia uh, and, and, and work for uh, Capitol Hill and, and pay off your student debts. Uh, you made a choice to step in a role at fair. Uh, you made a choice to come on this podcast today, the best podcast you've ever been on. Uh, so I got to ask you, Mrs. Gable is what advice would you give, uh, your old self in Lynchburg, Virginia? The, the best advice I was given when I was 21 years old is speak with facts. And so I was taught to always, as you going back to the very initial part of our conversation, data is king. And it's important to actually start um, understanding, like really understanding the, the realities of each situation and the unintended consequences of a decision that you might make that actually has repercussions down the line. And if you can learn that really early on, as you're making choices, you're thinking about the data, you're speaking with facts, and so you're credible. But third, you're making choices that don't have unintended consequences. And that's really important in business. There are a lot of times in business where choices have been made with an unintended consequence that's actually hurt something else. And so choice is one that has to be informed choice. And so it's important to make sure that you're getting a diversity of opinions, that you're not just focused on the same opinion set that you always hear, that you're really seeking out different opinions and driving your choice and your decisions by the data and the information you've collected from those opinions. And it's nice to see that you're doing that as well with the research, the first thing you're doing. Yeah, you know, we got to research and figure out what's going on. And I think what's also important is you're bringing on different uh different sectors, uh, such as the research and innovation. You're working for a nonprofit. You worked in the for-profit. You've worked for a government. Uh, a, a great trait of leadership is building bridges, building bridges and breaking down those silos. Uh, so to bring this full circle, uh, Mrs. Gable, is what is your definition of a real leader? My definition is a person who not only inspires, but they help their people be successful in a complex environment. The world today is far more complex than it used to be. And you have to help your people be successful. That's your job as a leader. You want to inspire them so that they want to follow you. You want to inspire them around a set of values towards a particular direction or goal. 
but you really do need to make sure that you remove the boulders out of the road and teach them how to deal with complexity because I do think that is the most difficult thing that young people are not necessarily being trained to do today. Beautifully put. Uh, Mrs. Gale, I just want to appreciate you coming on the show today. I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, for Ambassador Lisa Gable, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, deal with complexity, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Lisa. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you, good people, for taking time to listen to this episode of The Real Years Podcast with my friend Lisa Gable. What do we think? We changed it up a little bit this time. Had someone on from, from Capitol Hill, also worked for PepsiCo, now in the nonprofit sector. What do we think, people? Is the leadership style different? I don't know. You tell me. Do you want to hear from somebody similar to Lisa? Do you want to hear from politicians? Do you want to hear from large corporations? Let us know. Leave a review or email us info at real-leaders.com. Let's make this podcast better. Let's make leadership better and let's change the world. All right, everybody. Take care.